The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Trump now has his own Benghazi. This is Thursday, October 19th, 2017. Thank you very much for diving in and for supporting this free independent news when you use and bookmark the Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. And we will get to Trump's Benghazi and Trump's Katrina and all the ugly rest of it. But first, the thing that directly affects you and me the most, Trump's destruction of health care and what's happening on that today. Our friends and family members who voted for Trump are the Americans who will be hardest hit by his latest sabotage of Obamacare. Repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act is what Trump promised during the campaign, and that promise is one of the reasons people voted for him. Some people. They clearly didn't expect him to simply gut Obamacare and leave it to bleed to death without a fix or a replacement. Whether his voters realized it or not, Trump's agenda is to undo as many Obama accomplishments as he can with no specific plans of his own. Nine months in, Trump hasn't signed any significant legislation to move the country forward on any given issue. Except for his just-proposed tax plan, Trump's focus has been on undoing almost everything Obama did. And while that may be soul-satisfying to Trump's base, his health care moves are more of a punch to the gut. In just one key state that went for Trump, Michigan, about a third of a million people who were not getting subsidies will see their monthly insurance bills go up by 26%. Among those who had been getting subsidies, the Associated Press reports that 70% of them live in red states. Nationwide, premiums will go up by 20%, leaving over a million people uninsured because of the expense, according to the Congressional Budget Office report. Even Republicans in Congress were caught off guard by Trump's executive order to end the subsidies. GOP lawmakers knew that just ending the subsidies without a replacement plan would be too cruel, and they would pay for that cruelty in their upcoming re-election campaigns. But it was not too cruel for Trump, and you get two weeks' notice. Under his order, the subsidies are due to end November 1st. Trump's order would mean lower insurance premiums for some through cheaper policies with less coverage while sharply raising premiums for others. The order would increase the government's deficit by $194 billion over the next 10 years. So the taxpayers get stuck with the bill as well. In the end, Trump's order means less coverage at a higher cost, and it's increased the uncertainty in the health care industry. A former health and human services official says this could be the end of Obamacare. Quoting her, within a year, this would kill the marketplace. Trump's been telling us for months that Obamacare is imploding. It wasn't, but now it is. It didn't fall. It was pushed by Trump to the delight of his base. But those who'll suffer are middle-class Americans, especially the self-employed, and nobody wins under this order. And if those rates go up next month for the people who voted for Trump, he and Republican lawmakers will get the blame just months ahead of the congressional election campaign. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which normally sides with Republicans, is appalled by Trump's order, and it's asking Congress to continue the subsidies. A few Republicans in Congress are pushing for just that, and they've been working with Democrats to try to fix this bleeding mess. Two senators say they've reached a bipartisan deal to keep the subsidies for another two years to at least temporarily stabilize the insurance market while continuing to keep certain services that are guaranteed by the Affordable Care Act and to keep serving people with pre-existing conditions. 
They will formally present their plan to the Senate today. Trump was all for it at first, for a few hours, but during those few hours he heard from the conservatives that represent his base. They weren't happy. But now Trump and some Republicans in Congress, especially extreme conservatives, are already against the bipartisan plan, so its own future is uncertain. Subsidies are the part of Obamacare conservatives hated the most, so they'd be glad to be rid of them. The plan doesn't seem destined to pass. In the meantime, there are lawsuits to try to stop Trump's order to gut Obamacare by ending the subsidies. Nineteen states are suing the Trump administration to keep those subsidies coming effective immediately. We await a ruling on that. It was lawsuits that have now stopped Trump's latest attempt at a Muslim ban, his third attempt. The new policy was about to go into effect yesterday when, on Tuesday, a federal judge in Hawaii blocked it. It was the same federal judge who'd ruled against a previous Trump Muslim ban. The judge ruled the new ban, quote, suffers from precisely the same maladies as its predecessor. Again, with no proof, the travel ban would make the United States any safer, and again, illegally discriminating against a nationality. And then on Wednesday, a second federal judge put a nationwide freeze on Trump's policy, saying the president himself had called it a Muslim ban during the campaign, and that it's still a Muslim ban, even with Venezuela and North Korea thrown in. The judge called it a reanimation of the twice-enjoined Muslim ban. Attorney General Jeff Sessions testified yesterday he's convinced the travel ban will get the Supreme Court approval because it vacated lawsuits, the court did, against the first and second travel bans. That fails to consider two things. One, the justices don't like to be told how to rule, regardless of their political leanings. And two, the lawsuits were vacated because the other two bans had already expired. Jeff Sessions' Justice Department, meanwhile, has just sent out a last-chance warning to several of the nation's sanctuary cities to either cooperate with the Trump immigrant crackdown or lose federal funding, even in places where the jails are already overcrowded. The American public is sick of it. Those are among Donald Trump's latest words on the Russia investigation. The American public is sick of it. He's right if he means there's a weariness out here among his supporters as well as his detractors. Monday, Trump said he'd like to see the Russia investigations end. He said that to key members of Congress, and they've been listening. More on them shortly. They ought to get to the end of it, said Trump, because I think the American public is sick of it. And although Trump said Mueller has proven, quote, absolutely no collusion, Trump also repeated what he'd said two months ago, that he has no intention of firing special counsel Robert Mueller. With that, the investigation has seen several more big developments. We've learned that Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort had even stronger ties to Russia than we had known. Investigative work by NBC News revealed Manafort has gotten about $60 million from a wealthy Russian who's closely associated with Vladimir Putin. Although the payments were originally identified as loans, Manafort has changed his story about whether he is or isn't in debt to that Russian oligarch. The only term outlined in the loan papers is that they are payable upon demand. Without repayment, though, they aren't loans. They're just payments. Mueller's prosecutors, who specialize in money laundering cases, are looking into all of that. It was Manafort who offered that wealthy Putin-connected Russian Trump campaign updates in the final weeks of the campaign. Documents show a Manafort eager to please that well-connected Russian. Was Manafort trying to pay some debts with political favors? It was Manafort who volunteered to be Trump's campaign manager, at no pay. 
It was Manafort who had consulted a Ukrainian government that was at the time backed by Russia. Manafort now faces subpoenas, and he's been told to expect an indictment by the special counsel. We have learned that the Senate Intelligence Committee has now subpoenaed Carter Page, Trump's foreign policy advisor during the campaign. Page, however, has promised to plead the fifth in what he calls a witch hunt. Carter Page was under surveillance by the U.S. government while he was Trump's advisor, allegedly for meeting with and making deals with Russian officials. We know Page went to Russia in July of last year to give a speech that criticized the U.S. policy on Russia, and like others in the Trump camp, he lied about it and covered it up. We've also learned that congressional investigators are looking into a now-dead Republican operative who'd funded a campaign to get Clinton's emails that were stolen by Russian hackers. Peter W. Smith was looking for those 33,000 emails from Clinton's private server, and he'd reportedly found them through five different groups, two of which are Russian. When he couldn't confirm the authenticity of those emails on his own, Smith says he alerted WikiLeaks and urged it to get and publish those emails. Smith took his own life for health and financial reasons, he said in a note, two weeks after telling a reporter what he had done in the name of Trump. House investigators have since interviewed a cybersecurity analyst Smith had hired. That analyst was called in after he said publicly Smith had ties to Trump's inner circle, including Mike Flynn, Steve Bannon, and Kellyanne Conway. House investigators have also heard from a law student who worked as Smith's assistant. Senate investigators have, meanwhile, reached out to another cybersecurity expert Smith had hired. Bob Mueller's investigation now includes an interview with that cyber guy who had since written an article entitled, The Time I Got Recruited to Collude with the Russians. We've learned that former press secretary Sean Spicer has been interviewed by special counsel Robert Mueller's investigators. And Spicer, who got fired and is now having to pay his own legal fees because of Trump, reportedly answered questions about the firing of James Comey, which Spicer inaccurately explained to the public at the time. We learned through testimony yesterday that Attorney General Jeff Sessions has not yet been interviewed by the special counsel. He says, And we've learned that Mueller's prosecutors also met with former Trump Chief of Staff Reince Priebus. Mueller wanted to know what Priebus knows about the firing of James Comey and the misleading statement from Trump about Don Jr.'s Trump Tower meeting with a gaggle of Russians. Mueller's team's also looking into the Oval Office meeting between Trump and two top Russian officials. Besides exposing a U.S. intelligence source in that meeting, Trump also told the Russians the pressure was off him now that he'd fired James Comey. Each of these questions indicates an obstruction of justice investigation. And Reince Priebus, who witnessed it all, was, according to his lawyer, happy to answer all of their questions. Besides being among those fired by Trump, Priebus may also be stuck with his lawyer bills and feeling a bit less loyal to Trump. It has been confirmed that both the Trump re-election campaign and the Republican National Committee are paying the legal fees of both Trump and Trump Jr., but do not appear to be paying anyone else's legal bills, including Reince Priebus, who was happy to answer all of those questions, including Reince Priebus, who was chairman of the Republican National Committee for six years. We now know the Trump campaign has spent well over a million dollars in legal fees over the past three months, an expense that has expanded alongside the expansion of the Russia investigation. Nine months in, the total legal bill for the Trump campaign is well over $2 million. Donations people made hoping to re-elect Trump, hats purchased by Trump supporters, 
For every $4 donated, a dollar is going to cover the legal fees of Donald Trump and Donald Trump Jr. Again, there is no indication any of the money has gone to anyone else. And in the midst of all of that, Trump continues to make himself easier to impeach. Between Trump's lack of accomplishments and his attacks on Republicans in Congress, those running for re-election next year are worried they'll lose because of Trump. They're worried about Trump's Breitbart buddy, Steve Bannon, who's campaigning to push mainstream Republicans out of Congress, when Trump, for his own preservation, should be working to keep those moderate Republicans. Many Republican members of Congress are running their re-election campaigns versus both Democrats and Steve Bannon's alt-right, and the Republican votes will be divided. Republican lawmakers also don't like it when Trump attacks them or their friends or their leaders and mentors. Trump's slams on them will be used in their opponents' campaign ads. And when Democrats take control of the House, says one Trump confidant, they will absolutely move for articles of impeachment. And that impeachment trial would derail Trump's agenda and the Republican agenda. CNN found more than a dozen Republicans to confirm that Trump's personal attacks and his failure to accomplish puts his job security equally at risk. It's true that even if a Democratic House were to impeach Trump, it would still require a two-thirds vote in the Senate to remove him from office, although Trump insulted some highly respected senators, too. And although there have been presidential impeachments before, never in our history have they resulted in the removal of a president. Resignation, yes. Removal, no. But for now, many Republicans in Congress are heeding Trump's call to end the investigating. Some have joined Trump and Carter Page in calling it a fishing expedition. But we've seen an awful lot of fish, says one Democratic senator. Democrats and Republicans are now sniping at one another over when the Russia investigation should end. Democrats say they've already made good progress and that the investigation should end when all the players and witnesses have been interviewed and all the requested documents are in. In other words, let the evidence decide when the probe should end. Democrats accuse Republicans of trying to rush through the most relevant witnesses, spending more time on side issues like whether anyone in the Obama administration had unmasked Trump officials who'd been caught up in the surveillance of Russians, and putting off the interviewing of other necessary witnesses. Republicans accuse Democrats of trying to drag this out to next year's congressional election campaigns. Republicans in Congress who want the Russia investigation to end complain of weak leads and a point of diminishing returns. Republicans argue that nine months of investigations have led nowhere, making this the aforementioned fishing expedition. Even if we have seen an awful lot of fish. But even the Republican chair of the House Intelligence Committee is refusing to set an end date. I just can't tell you, says Mike Conaway, whether that's December 15th or January 30th. The struggle to keep the congressional investigations alive continues. In the meantime, Trump is failing to get congressional investigators off his back. The House Judiciary Committee asked the White House for information about senior officials using private email and encrypted messaging apps for government work. The Judiciary Committee wants to know this because failure to keep such communications would be a violation of the Presidential Records Act, which requires the saving of those documents for the American people, their historians, and their journalists. The request came from the two leaders of that committee, fierce Trump critic Elijah Cummings and fierce Clinton investigator Trey Gowdy. And the answer from the Trump White House to that request was no. No, the White House won't say whether administration officials had used personal email accounts for government business, nor 
would the White House supply any emails to investigators? As for those encrypted apps, they delete a message shortly after it's been read, leaving no record, no trace. So no, those won't be turned over to the committee either. And the White House insists it is complying with the Presidential Records Act. Now, that response makes both the Republican and the Democrat leading the Judiciary Committee very, very unhappy. Chairman Gowdy lives to investigate things, and he has the power to hit the White House with subpoenas. Committee member Jerry Connolly says the committee needs to assert its jurisdiction and authority immediately to get this information. And, he adds, if the White House won't provide documents to permit basic judiciary inquiry, the chairman should send subpoenas. Quoting Chairman Gowdy, we expect full compliance. And that lays the groundwork for an ugly battle between lawmakers and the White House. Gowdy and Cummings are also asking the White House for a breakdown of every flight on private or government planes taken by senior White House officials. Again, quoting our president, the American public is sick of it. It was a Democratic governor who this week vetoed a bill that would have required presidential candidates to release their tax records in order to get on the ballot in that state. The state is California, and the governor is the very progressive Jerry Brown. But to sign a law such as the one angry California Democrats had passed would have been hypocritical for Brown. He didn't release his taxes before running for governor, both in 2010 and 2014. In his veto, Brown wrote, It may not be constitutional. It sets a slippery slope precedent. Today we require tax returns. What would be next? Five years of health records? High school report cards? It's about transparency, and the loser is the American voter. It was that California bill that inspired lawmakers in other states to introduce very similar bills. It doesn't help their cause that California wasn't up to the task when all was said and done. The law would have required a candidate to release the past five years of tax returns in order to qualify for the California election ballot. Trump says he didn't release his because of pending audits, making him the first president in 40 years to hide his returns. The purpose of the California bill was to make it impossible for Trump to run again there without releasing his taxes. Speaking of, there are two things to know about Trump's tax plan. One, a majority of us don't like it, 52% according to a new CNN poll. Two, Trump's tax plan appears far more likely to pass now that Senator John McCain is on board and the ailing Thad Cochran of Mississippi has returned from his illness. This means Republicans no longer need the Democrats at all to pass their budget and Trump's tax plan. The only thing standing in the Republicans' way is Republicans. They still haven't written up that tax cut plan. They haven't said which deductions they will cut to generate the trillions of dollars needed to cover the tax cuts. And they have to make at least appear that the wealthiest Americans don't clean up on these tax cuts. And Senate Republicans would still have to reconcile their plan with the one already approved in the House, and the president would have to carry out his promise to sign it. And now, Trump says he also wants welfare reform as part of the bill. And to complicate things further, Republicans may tack that bipartisan health care proposal onto the budget bill to attract Democratic votes. As for that John McCain vote, even it's uncertain In a speech this week, the veteran Arizona senator didn't mention Trump by name, but was clearly referencing the president when he condemned, quote, half-baked spurious nationalism. Trump responded to that, saying, as he likes to brag, he hits back. 
And, said Trump, when he does hit back, quote, it won't be pretty. Talk of our opioid epidemic heated up this week, starting with a 60 Minutes Washington Post report. That report blamed the pharmaceutical industry's influence on Congress for a bill that stripped the DEA of its ability to stop suspicious shipments of prescription drugs. Big Pharma had donated a lot of campaign money and followed up with an intense campaign to push the bill through. And nearly every member of Congress voted to approve that bill. Some say they were hoodwinked into voting for it, not knowing its effect. Others, especially Utah's Orrin Hatch, got defensive, saying the DEA should have told lawmakers if they thought it was a bad bill. But the Washington Post 60 Minutes report also singled out Republican Congressman Tom Marino, who steered the bill through Congress. Marino got extra attention in the report because of that and because he was Trump's pick to be the new head of the DEA. In the raging controversy since that media report, Marino has now withdrawn his name from consideration. So the search for a new DEA nominee begins. Next week is when Trump says he will declare a nationwide emergency in the opioid epidemic, freeing federal agencies to exert more influence over the causes and cures and more resources to fight the epidemic, something Trump had promised to do months ago. Colorado now reports that its opioid deaths are down since it legalized marijuana. Attorney General Jeff Sessions has vowed to crack down on marijuana users, even in states where it's legal, and Sessions continues to oppose legalization on every level. Trump's Benghazi, Trump's Katrina, Bob Seska, and more after this. Autumn is a wonderful time to start bringing life and color indoors. Embrace the season, and I'll bet you know someone who loves everything from fall colors to pumpkin spice. That's why it's a perfect time to go to proflowers.com and check out their best-selling cinnamon cider roses, a long-lasting bouquet that's perfect for any occasion this fall. Or check out their 100 autumn blooms, or even a dozen of their autumn roses. And if you choose any of these items for $29 or more, ProFlowers will take 20% off the price, just because you heard about it here. And remember, Pro Flowers are guaranteed to stay fresh for at least seven days or your money back. As always, you pick the delivery date. Pro Flowers gives you more bloom for your buck. Big, beautiful flowers with long, healthy stems. Again, get 20% off all bouquets of $29 or more when you go to proflowers.com and use our code REALM at checkout. That's R-E-L-M in the discount code box when you check out at proflowers.com. Thank you for using my sponsors and for supporting this free news through the PayPal button at buzzburbank.com. Like the Hillary Clinton Trump can't let go, Donald Trump now has his own email scandal, even if his was created by his family advisors. And now Trump may also be dogged by his own Benghazi. For many years, U.S. troops have been training local soldiers in the African country of Niger to fight ISIS. There are about 800 American soldiers there currently. Two weeks ago, four of our Green Berets were killed and two more were wounded when they were ambushed by about 50 ISIS fighters. In that unexpected firefight, French military helicopters swooped in to provide cover fire and to rescue the wounded and recover the dead. The Navy SEALs were called in. It was chaos, and two weeks later, it still isn't clear what happened, how this happened, or why this happened. And one of the men got left behind, 25-year-old Sergeant LaDavid Johnson, whose body was found by local soldiers two days later. 
Back here in the States, he is survived by his pregnant wife and their two children. We'll get back to his widow in a moment. Now, the Pentagon is investigating to find out what happened. What was the sequence of events, the timeline? Why did U.S. intelligence tell the Green Berets that running into ISIS was unlikely that day? Were the Green Berets set up by the locals? Could this have been prevented? And what needs to be done to make it not happen again? And why was Sergeant LaDavid Johnson left behind? Was he alive when he was left behind? The preliminary answers to these questions are expected by the close of business tomorrow, Friday, but they will most likely remain classified. Congress will see the answers. Congress wants answers. There's already talk of a Benghazi-like congressional investigation, John McCain leading the charge. Leading members of Congress are demanding answers, including to the question, what exactly is the U.S. doing in Niger? What's the strategy there? Quoting one lawmaker, inattention to this issue is unacceptable. And so Donald Trump may now have his own Benghazi in Niger. And being the man he is, he's now made it worse. It was 12 days before Trump acknowledged the death of four American soldiers in the deadliest combat incident of his presidency. On October 5th, the day after that ambush, as the dead arrived at Dover Air Base, Trump was tweeting about the fake news media and warning reporters that a photo op was the calm before the storm, a statement he gladly repeated, but coyly refused to explain. When we finally learned the identity of the soldier left behind, the late Sergeant LaDavid Johnson Trump was playing golf and trolling Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman Bob Corker on Twitter. Trump also tweeted about the NFL, North Korea, Puerto Rico, and the fake news media again. He was not tweeting about the tragedy or paying tribute to the fallen. Unlike many president, this man of many words had none. Once a dozen days had passed, Trump appeared in the Rose Garden to take reporters' questions. It was then he finally addressed the fallen, but only because he'd been asked about a failed military operation. Trump stumbled through his answer, saying he does call family. Sometimes he writes, the letters go out tonight. Nothing about what had happened in Niger, which is what he'd been asked about. And then Trump tried to deflect by dragging other presidents into his remarks and lied again. And this wasn't just another Trump lie. It was an effing lie, according to President Obama's former chief of staff for operations. In a bizarre Rose Garden news conference Monday, Trump had gotten defensive about calling the families of the four Navy SEALs who were killed in that mysterious raid in the African country of Niger. Trump said, if you look at President Obama and other presidents, most of them didn't make calls. A lot of them didn't make calls. When a reporter questioned that claim, Trump admitted he didn't know what he was talking about. I don't know, said Trump. That's what I was told. The buck passes here. This is not the first time Trump has been challenged only to qualify his remarks with, I don't know. Trump had besmirched other former presidents, too, former presidents who have kept respectfully quiet about Trump's presidency as his tradition. This time, the former president swung back. Representatives of the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administration spoke up to say their bosses had made those calls. A former Obama official tweeted, that's an effing lie, but with the entire word, adding of Trump, he's a deranged animal. 
Yesterday, Trump was still refusing to back down from his claim, saying, I think Obama probably did sometimes, and maybe sometimes he didn't. A former senior Obama official says Obama, quote, engaged families of the fallen and wounded warriors throughout his presidency through calls, letters, visits to Section 60 at Arlington, visits to Walter Reed, visits to Dover, and regular meetings with Gold Star families at the White House and across the country. Obama was famously present at Dover to receive the remains of the fallen as they were flown back to the U.S. This wasn't just another Trump lie. It was, according to the woman who ran operations for Obama, an effing lie. And it diverted our attention from the questions about what had happened in that failed military operation. And maybe that was the point. A subject, that raid, a subject the president still has not addressed. A subject he escaped addressing in that bizarre Rose Garden news conference. Perhaps because a reporter had asked him about it, Trump picked up the phone later and called the widow of Sergeant LaDavid Johnson. Maisha Johnson was in her car at the time with her mother-in-law and Florida Congresswoman Frederica Wilson on their way to the airport to receive LaDavid's body. The phone was on speaker. The Congresswoman and the widow's mother-in-law claimed Trump told Maisha her husband, quote, knew what he signed up for, but I guess it still hurt. When Maisha hung up, crying, she told her mother-in-law and the congresswoman he didn't even remember his name. It is conceivable that no one in the car liked Donald Trump to begin with. Maisha barely remembers the conversation, she says, and people often hear what they expect to hear. And there's the rub. Even if the president hadn't said such an insensitive thing in this case, he certainly has before, so the account, true or not, is completely believable, sadly. But as Trump likes to brag, he hits back, even if it involves the grieving widow of one of the soldiers he ultimately commands. He took to Twitter, where he's safe from reporters' questions. Democratic congresswoman, he wrote, totally fabricated what I said to the wife of a soldier who died in action. And, Trump added, I have proof. And that was just another lie. The White House says there is no recording of that conversation. So whether Trump said what he said becomes irrelevant. He was once again doing battle with the family of the fallen, just as he had done with a Gold Star family during last year's Democratic convention. Chris Baldridge of North Carolina heard from Trump a few weeks after his son was killed and nearly fell over when Trump offered to write him a personal check for twenty-five grand and pledged the White House would set up a fundraising page for his family. Baldridge had talked about the trouble he was having with the military's survivor benefits program, adding, I can barely rub two nickels together. He says Trump, back in June on the phone, offered to write him a check out of Trump's personal account, reminding the mourning father, no other president has ever done something like this, but I'm going to do it. Baldridge says he never did. Last night, after news of this got out, the White House said the check is in the mail. And some families haven't heard from Trump at all, even months after their children's deaths. In the Rose Garden, Trump had claimed he calls every family, unlike other presidents. Unlike other presidents, indeed. With a biting commentary about all this, here's Salon.com writer Bob Seska. Thanks, Buzz. Maybe you've noticed this. I sure have. Too many social media users never read articles beyond a few words in the headline, and then, making matters worse, they stupidly assume to know everything about the content of the piece, despite having not read it. 
After failing to understand anything about what was written, they, of course, scramble over themselves to blurt their dissatisfaction in the comments section or on their Twitter feed, haughtily explaining why your article is wrong while comporting themselves as experts on an angle they clearly haven't read about. This dynamic happens to also illustrate Donald Trump's barely existent grasp of the facts. The extent of Trump's knowledge of the issues is very likely based on half-listening to goofy Steve Ducey on Fox and Friends, backed with exactly zero reading of official government memorandums gathering dust on the Resolute Desk. We've already heard that memos handed to Trump are required to be less than a page in length with brief bullet points, as if an issue like healthcare or climate could be summarized so sparsely. But it too often seems as though he doesn't even read those. Most of the time, Trump acts like a fifth grader, bullshit his way through an essay exam on topics he knows nothing about. In fact, we should just assume that Trump knows nothing. Full stop. Not just about the issues, but also about history, too. Hell, he barely has a working knowledge of typical human behavior. Trump and his family, Don Jr., Ivanka, Eric, and the rest of the Fifth Avenue weirdos, are like the coneheads, vaguely attempting to behave like normal humans, but not quite getting it right. What's remarkable about this space alien thing is that Trump's awkward, eternal now, full-of-shit behavior is perfectly acceptable to around 62 million Americans, despite the reality that Trump is the first real villain to hold the office since Nixon, or perhaps Trump's hero, Andrew Jackson, who he also likely knows very little about. He's not even a smart villain. He's much more Solomon Grundy than Lex Luthor. Despite it all, Trump is acutely aware of the fact that whatever he says, no matter how ludicrous, will be fully accepted as reality by his loyalists. Trump commands an army of comment trolls who don't read, and he knows it, because why should they read? The president said it, so it must be true, right? It's got to feel liberating to know that he could blurt total gibberish and his people will parachute into their social media feeds to repeat his gobbledygook by rote. This is precisely why you won't hear Trump publicly apologize to former presidents, especially Barack Obama, for suggesting that they never called the families of American soldiers killed in action. Here's the full quote from a joint press conference with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in the Rose Garden the other day. I will, at some point during the, the period of time, call the parents and uh, the families, because I have done that traditionally. Uh, I felt very, very badly about that. I always feel badly. It's, it's the toughest. The toughest calls I have to make are the calls where uh, this happens. Soldiers are killed. Uh, it's a very difficult thing. Now, it gets to a point where, you know, you make four or five of them in one day is a very, very tough day. For me, that's by far the toughest. So the traditional way, if you look at uh, President Obama and other presidents, most of them uh, didn't make calls. A lot of them didn't make calls. Once again, he's bullshitting an essay exam he was unprepared for. But here's how his enfeebled gray matter malfunctioned the other day. Right after he said, at some point during the period of time, knowing that it's been weeks since American Green Berets were ambushed in Niger, he realized it makes him appear a little insensitive to the troops, having allowed so much time to elapse. So naturally, his gaffe would have occurred if he actually did his job with the same thoroughness as previous chief executives, but he doesn't. Trump gets away with doing the bare minimum. In fact, he would have quit months ago out of pure exhaustion if he actually tried to accomplish a typical day in the life. Still kerfuffled by his initial gaffe, Trump shifted into a familiar whining and grievances posture in order to obscure the real news that he hasn't yet spoken to the families of the Green Berets. 
Maybe if he complains about how hard it is to be president, he'll gain the sympathy of those who were scowling at the quote-unquote period of time dodge. Hence more whining by easily the whiniest, poopiest, diapered president in history. And just in case whining didn't work, he went with throwing Obama under the bus. Of course, he wasn't concerned about fact-checking because Fox News doesn't fact-check Trump, so who cares if he lies? If that was his plan, to distract from his initial remark with a lie about other presidents, then mission accomplished. The focus on Twitter and Facebook appears to be the Obama lie, rather than the fact that Trump said he hasn't called the families more than 10 days and counting after the ambush. Trump can't even do the basics. He can't get it together enough to call grieving families, and he can't talk about slain American soldiers without gagging on his own horse. He can't talk about anything of substance, sure, but when it comes to being commander-in-chief, he's miserably failing his Support the Troops 101 essay exams. For his people, however, he's still the bestest president ever, an evaluation based on criteria no more stringent than what a little boy hears from his doting mother. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Catch him at Salon.com and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. I'm honored to be a guest there every week. I'll see you there Tuesday. The situation in Puerto Rico has improved, but not by much. The situation remains dire three weeks after Hurricane Maria. Although Puerto Rico's governor says he expects 95% of that U.S. territory will have electricity by mid-December, he says it can only happen with all hands on deck. As it stands, less than 20% of the Americans on that island have power, and they'll be lucky if they get power to 30% by Halloween. The goal is 50% or so by Thanksgiving. 40% are without running water. 80% have no electricity. Hospitals are low on medicine. We're still waiting for the Senate to approve the House measure that would make billions more dollars available. Many in Puerto Rico are still waiting for water, still drinking from contaminated sources, still getting sick, still dying. Not from the storm, but three weeks later from the lack of response by the U.S. government. Some die because there's no power to run their oxygen or their dialysis, and without refrigeration, their lifeless bodies rot and decay before burial. The U.S. response to this disaster has been slow. For weeks, a U.S. Navy hospital ship had 800 personnel treating seven or eight patients. It's now up to 40 patients or so, still only a fraction of the hundreds or thousands it could treat if someone would bring the patients. The problem, besides money, is a lack of organization that we haven't seen since Hurricane Katrina's aftermath in New Orleans. In one field hospital tent that was supposed to remain sterile while treating patients, relief workers, using money donated for a spa day, got themselves pedicures. The sterility protocol was ignored that day, and patients were not seen that day. FEMA has 1,100 workers on the job in Puerto Rico, fewer than half the number that went to Florida for Hurricane Irma and less than a third of the number sent to Texas for Hurricane Harvey. A FEMA official said, quote, we have the right number of people there. To many, this is Trump's Katrina. And that brings us to the woman Donald Trump has chosen to run the Homeland Security Department that oversees FEMA. It was Kirsten Nielsen, who was one of the top Homeland Security advisors to the Bush White House, who got an urgent message from the Red Cross warning that Katrina was likely to bring great destruction to New Orleans. She never acted on that memo, and it wasn't the only email Nielsen apparently disregarded. She got many alarming emails in the days that followed as New Orleans sank beneath the water. 
In the investigations that followed, it was Nielsen and her team who got the most blame for Bush's failure to properly handle that disaster. But now Trump has chosen her to run the Homeland Security Department. The PR firm that Nielsen now employs says she has learned a lot from her experience, lately serving as Trump's deputy chief of staff. Kirsten Nielsen will now oversee 240,000 employees in more than two dozen agencies under the Homeland Security umbrella, juggling a $240 billion budget. There will be no on-the-job training for Kirsten, said Trump, adding, she's ready on day one. The death toll in the Northern California fires is now 41 with the passing of a first responder crashing his car while delivering water. More than 80 people are still listed as missing and increasingly presumed dead, which would put the death toll closer to 120. Firefighters were more optimistic about their work after a week of strategic containment, partly thanks to less wind and the prospect of more rain. Two of the bigger fires are now about 80% contained. 40,000 people, however, are still evacuated. Many of them have no home to which they can return. The fires have burned more than 200,000 acres, including large areas of wine country and nearly 6,000 homes and businesses. They hope to have the fires fully contained by tomorrow, Friday. The wine industry there reports it's grinding back into business, but worried people now won't come for the wine tastings. It will take billions, tens of billions of dollars to get Santa Rosa and other communities nearby back on their feet. And it's worth mentioning again that private drone operators have again gotten in the way of the firefighting. The Highway Patrol has arrested at least one drone operator for breaking California's law against flying in a wildfire area. The 24-year-old arrested says he didn't know it was illegal. The CHP posted on Facebook, in all caps, Firefighting planes cannot fly if your drone is in the air. Land them, said the Post, if you want these fires out. Who would have thought? It may be time to send in Dennis Rodman. That's the advice of the head of Korean studies at Columbia University, who says Rodman, who's a friend of both Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, could play a powerful role in bringing the two men face-to-face. Professor Charles Armstrong says, quote, Trump has to talk to Kim Jong-un. A face-to-face is something the U.S. has strategically refused to allow so far, holding it out as a carrot to entice Kim to suspend his nuclear program first, then talk. But talking with the U.S., or anyone for that matter, about his nukes is something Kim was refusing to do as recently as this week. And Trump had said he'd like to meet the North Korean leader one day under the right circumstances. At one point in the campaign, Trump said he'd be willing to sit down with Kim for a hamburger. Could Dennis Rodman be the right circumstances? Trump is traveling to Asia in a little over two weeks from now. That trip comes at a time the professor believes that Kim is rethinking how much he wants to provoke the United States and beginning to truly suffer from the sanctions against his country and recognition on the world stage for North Korea, meeting with an American president, is what Kim has wanted all along. Quoting the professor, North Korea's goal is certainly not to destroy the United States. Dennis Rodman? Really? With pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal unpopular among American voters and even more unpopular among Trump's national security advisors, it seemed there was a chance Trump would again certify what the experts have told them, that Iran is complying with the terms of that deal. 
But Trump says Iran has violated the terms in spirit by launching test missiles and backing terrorism. So this week, in the face of the facts and the advice of the nation's generals, Trump declared that Iran had not lived up to the agreement and forthwith decertified their compliance. He didn't exactly pull out of the Iran deal, but he certainly squirreled it. And in that act, Trump threw the deal at the Republican Congress, where many agree with Trump's criticism of the Iran deal and are eager to impose new sanctions. Or they could vote to keep the agreement they've long criticized. Ever the peacemaker, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson says the U.S. is trying to stay in the nuclear deal, but negotiate a better one. As one former State Department official put it, that's like renegotiating a prenuptial agreement after the wedding. And good luck with that. It's a seven-way marriage. The U.S. is only one of six countries in the deal, not counting Iran. The U.S., along with France, the U.K., Germany, Russia, and China, worked for 13 years on this deal. Iran says that in the final two years, the talks got genuinely serious and is more than a little unhappy about Trump's decertification and the sanctions that may follow. We've learned more this week about the U.S. handling of the attacks on Americans in Cuba that left them with symptoms including permanent hearing loss. The skeleton crew of U.S. Embassy personnel remaining in Havana have been giving a recording of the sound that attacks their comrades. Listening in short bursts does not appear to be harmful, and the recording informs those remaining personnel just what it is they should listen for and be cautious of. Those remaining personnel have been instructed by the State Department to record that sound or anything like it should the sound reappear. They've been told to send those recordings to U.S. intelligence for analysis. We've all had a chance to hear this sound in short bursts on various news reports. We now know it's made up of 20 different audio frequencies. What we don't know is who's been generating that sound at the expense of some two dozen Americans. The suspects remain Russia, North Korea, Iran, Syria, and of course Cuba. But Trump, who's already reversed Obama's policy warming relations with Cuba, says Cuba is responsible for the attacks. Many U.S. officials now reportedly believe that Cuba was experimenting with eavesdropping equipment and that their equipment somehow malfunctioned. The mystery continues. A handful of people were arrested this week for the murder of a young black man in Georgia 34 years ago. The statute of limitations never runs out on murder, and those arrested this week in the case include two members of law enforcement. 23-year-old Timothy Coggins was found dead on October 9, 1983, his body lying in some tall grass not far from a road in Spalding County. Now a female police department employee and a male detention officer are charged with obstruction of justice, while two men in their late 50s are charged with killing Timothy and hiding his body. Investigators have no doubt the killing was racially motivated. News about puppy mills. Why people come in colors. The Me Too campaign. And a funny thing happened on the way to the toilet. In the third and final segment, up next. You know, I'm very grateful for the support that you've shown for this free, independent news and comment by doing as much of your shopping as possible through my Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. You land right on your very own Amazon page and get the same great prices as always. Trump hates Amazon. If you believe in what we're doing here, it's very important. You go to buzzburbank.com, click on that Amazon link, and bookmark the page to make it one of your favorites for future shopping. 
Whether you're already a Prime member or shopping Amazon for the first time, going through that link, even just that first time, helps sustain this program. Amazon has nearly everything you need right to your door in two days or less for Prime members. Plus, you get Amazon Prime Video, which comes with the Prime membership, along with music and books and more. And please use my Amazon link if you make purchases for your office, school, church, or some other organization. And to those of you who already shop through my link, again, my thanks. And if Amazon's not right for you, you can also support this program by clicking on the PayPal button just below the Amazon button in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. Folks on Social Security are getting a 2% raise next year thanks to a healthy 2% inflation rate. On average, it means an extra 27 bucks a month for over 61 million people. It is the biggest cost of living raise in five years. About half of all Social Security recipients depend on those government checks for half their monthly income. And those payments lifted 26 million Americans out of poverty last year. Consumer confidence, meanwhile, is at its highest level in 13 years, up 6% from last month. Experts say that confidence level shows the U.S. economy is working about as well as we can expect it to. Jobs have a lot to do with that, but so does the soaring stock market. The Dow crossed the 23,000 threshold for the first time ever this week. Electric car maker Tesla, however, has just fired hundreds of workers at its facility in Fremont, California. It's not a cutback, and these are not layoffs. These four to 700 employees were all fired at once for poor scores on their performance evaluations. Most of the firings were in administrative and sales jobs, with very few firings in the manufacturing division. You have to have at least $2 billion to make Forbes' richest Americans list these days, the Forbes 400. But Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Warren Buffett are light years above that mark at between 75 and $90 million as they top that list. It's not an easy list to make. Nearly 200 American billionaires didn't make the list, including Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg. Donald Trump is still on that list, but now toward the bottom. Forbes says Trump's net worth fell by $600 million last year, pushing him 92 notches down the list. Forbes says a tough New York real estate market, an expensive lawsuit settlement, and an expensive election campaign gobbled up that $600 million. Trump had to pay $25 million to settle the Trump University lawsuit. Trump has also lost $25 million on his golf resorts in Scotland and took out $200 million in loans to keep those resorts afloat. So much for the art of the deal. Trump didn't make the Bloomberg worldwide list of billionaires at all. Bloomberg says Trump is not one of the 500 richest people in the world with a net worth of a meager $2.8 billion. The obesity epidemic is growing like our waistlines. The latest CDC figures show that 4 in 10 adults are now obese. For kids, it's nearly 1 in 5. The adult obesity rate is up by nearly 10% just in the past 15 years. Nearly half of all blacks and Hispanics are now obese at 47%. It's 38% for whites, 13% for Asian Americans. A man who stands 6 feet and weighs 220 pounds is obese. For women, it's 203 pounds at a height of 5'9". Adult onset diabetes is now appearing in kids, along with the grown-up problems of high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and fatty liver disease. 
Most alarming is the upward or outward trend and the health costs that come with them. Experts say the cure is a healthier diet and more exercise. Why do people come in so many different colors? The answer was the quest of genetic researchers at the University of Pennsylvania who studied Africans with the palest skin, those with the darkest skin, and countless variations between those extremes. And they found the genes, the DNA, that determine our skin color. They found that while skin we call white is good at soaking up the rays of the sun, boosting vitamin D levels, white skin also burns easily and is subject to various forms of skin cancer. Skin we call black holds up better under the sun and is less prone to cancer, but also filters out that sunshine vitamin. It's worth noting that somewhere in between seems to be the ideal, and we may be genetically headed in that direction. And the research found that skin colors have gotten generally darker over the course of human evolution. Quoting one researcher, it is likely that when we lost the hair covering our bodies and moved from forest to the open savanna, we needed darker skin. Equifax had to take some of its web pages offline for a bit this past week after a security analyst found that Equifax had again been hacked. It's only been a month since the credit reporting company announced it had been the target of one of the biggest data breaches in U.S. history, compromising 145 million people. And all because Equifax hadn't updated its security software. The latest hack involved malicious software or malware that could be used later to steal even more data. More recently, a keen-eyed Equifax customer was trying to download his Equifax report when he suddenly saw a link for downloading a version of the Adobe Flash Player. That's a common way for the bad guys to get into a computer. And this was discovered less than a month after we learned, belatedly, of a bigger attack. Equifax says it took the pages offline out of an abundance of caution. What if it were legal for someone to hack the hacker who had stolen their data? We may find out. A Democrat and a Republican are sponsoring a bill in the House that would decriminalize retaliatory hacking. Victims, be they individuals or corporations, would have the legal right to stage a cyber attack against the party that hacked them first. They would have to get FBI approval first. The degree of difficulty here is there is still no clear legal definition for hacking, since people often share passwords with people they trust. Would using those passwords make friends or family members open to retaliatory hacking? Is using someone else's password considered hacking? Chicago is one of the safest cities in the world. Online. The Windy City may have a high murder rate, but The Economist is out with its annual Safe Cities Index, and Chicago ranks third behind Tokyo and Singapore. San Francisco and Dallas came in eighth and ninth on the list. The city government's cybersecurity tune-up in Chicago was inspired by Mayor Rahm Emanuel and given a helping hand by the U.S. Defense Department. With Chicago's recognition comes a warning to other cities and counties an entire city could be left in chaos if hackers were to shut down the power supply. A growing number of Americans are living single, especially young adults. They're not only not married, they're not even living with someone. They're living alone. The percentage of people without a spouse or romantic partner has increased by 3% over the past 10 years. Today, 42% of us, again, people under 35, are living alone. 
Over six in 10 of these younger adults live by themselves. And the blame does not lie with divorce. Well over half of today's singles have never been married. Fewer than one in five are single through divorce, according to this Pew Research survey. Marriage and birth rates continue their downward trends, even though the Great Recession that slowed them is now over. It has happened even with the aging of baby boomers who are more likely to be married. Politically active actress Alyssa Milano, who starred on Melrose Place and alongside Rose McGowan in Charmed, launched a huge awareness campaign this week by urging women to post hashtag MeToo if they had been a victim of sexual assault. A quarter million of those hashtags immediately appeared, including from actresses Anna Paquin and Deborah Messing. Jane Fonda says she is now ashamed that she didn't speak up years ago about what she witnessed even if it wasn't at the hands of Harvey Weinstein, what she herself experienced. Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Lawrence say they were abused as well. Things do appear to be changing, at least in Hollywood, at least by appearance. The Motion Picture Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Oscar people, have ejected Harvey Weinstein. The 54-member Board of Governors made that call by a more than two-thirds majority, including votes from Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, and Whoopi Goldberg. And this came just two weeks after the first published reports that Weinstein had a history of using his considerable influence to pursue, assault, and allegedly sometimes rape women. Weinstein's movies had won six Best Picture Oscars. In 2003, four of the five nominated films were his. In its statement, the Academy said the era of willful ignorance and shameful complicity in sexually predatory behavior and workplace harassment in our industry is over. Roman Polanski and Bill Cosby are still members. Woody Allen, who at first warned against a witch hunt over the Weinstein story, now says Weinstein is a sad, sick man. The British Film Academy, BAFTA, had earlier suspended Weinstein as London police investigate multiple complaints made there. At Amazon Studios, CEO Roy Price has resigned now after being suspended for allegedly sexually harassing the female producer of Man in the High Castle. As Halloween approaches, Happy Death Day was the top movie in North American theaters this past week. It sold nearly $27 million in tickets. Blade Runner 2049 was second. The Foreigner was third. It fell to third place as Halloween approaches. The idea is to put the puppy mills and kitty factories out of business. California now has a new law that requires pet stores to only sell dogs, cats, and rabbits that come from shelters or rescue groups. As it stands, pet stores keep the mills in business, while taxpayers in just that one state spend a quarter billion dollars a year on euthanizing animals from shelters. There is praise for the new law from all quarters, except for the American Kennel Club and the California Retailers Association, both of whom fought the bill. But the bill passed through California's legislature and has now been signed by Governor Jerry Brown. Rodriguez Aguilera has been the vice mayor of Doral, Florida. She's a businesswoman. She's been a teacher and a community advocate. She's now running for Congress to represent South Florida. She also says she was visited by extraterrestrials when she was seven years old and that she has communicated telepathically with them off and on ever since. Running as a Republican... Aguilera says she needs more time before taking positions on health care or relations with Cuba. 
First, let me be clear that no children were injured in this story, to our great relief, very much including my own. Second, it is semi-widely known I am not a fan of strollers. More accurately, I am not a fan of stroller-driving parents who may, for example, impede innocent pedestrians without noticing. Blocking passage, sometimes without a baby on board and sometimes with a double wide. Being a parent is a difficult and admirable thing, and it's hard to keep an eye on everything when you are a parent. But with strollers, sometimes without considering other people. Still, thankfully, there was no child in the stroller that was struck by a rapidly moving freight train in New Neaton, England. The train dragged the stroller for some distance from the transit station to the nearest intersection, where the trailing stroller struck a car that was waiting for the train to pass. The car was barely damaged, but the stroller and everything in it were smashed to bits. Transport police tweeted a warning to parents, be careful. A funny thing happened on the way to the toilet. There have been a rash of toilet-related stories under the strange-but-true news category lately. A man in Australia was about to sit down on his when he discovered a baby opossum who was stuck down under. Quoting the pest control dude, first time in 30 years I've heard of an opossum coming up through the toilet. Rats, but never opossum. In a laundry list of places, snakes have been coming up through toilets. A woman in Florida called 911 when she found a two-foot-long iguana swimming in her toilet. Quoting the woman, I have no idea how it got there. In Texas, it was a squirrel. The last we heard, the mysterious creature that came up through a toilet in Malaysia was never identified. In England, a man came home to find that a postal carrier had slid a package into his flat through an open window. To the man's disappointment, the package had landed in the toilet. The husband of a wedding photographer in Alaska had to use a magnet to rescue his wife's gun, which had fallen in, shall we say, after the fact. In Norway, the fire brigade in Drammen had to rescue a man who was trying to rescue a friend's cell phone from that hole in the bottom of the bowl and got his arm stuck inside. Firefighters in China rescued a woman whose leg had gotten trapped in the toilet. No word on how it got stuck there. I recall mentioning the dog walker in Oregon who came across a porta potty he didn't expect to see. When he opened it up, he, and ultimately the police, learned that someone had been drying their weed in that tall blue box. And in Budapest, an impossible number of people filed through the door of a single porta potty to get to the secret rave party in the building behind it. Flight 666 left Copenhagen on Friday the 13th for the last time. Flight 666 was making its final journey to hell. That's H-E-L, as in the abbreviation for Helsinki Airport. Flight 666 had been flying into hell for 11 years and Finnair officials say they don't recall anyone ever objecting to taking Flight 666 into hell on any of those trips, even the ones that fell on Friday the 13th. For the past nine years, the Labatt Food Service in Harlingen, Texas, has been delivering fajitas to the Juvenile Justice Center. The odd part is, during none of those nine years did the Juvenile Justice Department ever order any fajitas because during those nine years, it never once served the troubled young people fajitas. Where did all those Labatt fajitas go? And 
Who ordered them? The answer is a now former employee of the Juvenile Justice Department. One day, this employee, Gilberto Escamilla, took a day off for a doctor's appointment, and it was someone else that day who took the call that Labatt was about to make another delivery of fajitas, an 800-pound delivery. Fajitas? The juvenile justice budget in Harlingen, Texas, has been coming up short for years, and no one had ever figured out why. Officials just kept writing off the difference without ever going back on the records for nine years. It turns out that for the past nine years, Mr. Escamilla had been taking those deliveries at taxpayer expense, presumably for resale. Police went to Gilberto's home and found fajitas. Gilberto had apparently taken over one and a quarter million dollars worth of fajitas over nearly a decade. Juvenile justice is now reviewing its practices and procedures. Gilberto is facing time in an adult facility where they also do not serve fajitas. It was serious news from the Fox 13 newsroom in Memphis when the reports came in about a big cat sighting in suburban South Haven, Mississippi. Eyewitness David Sluter was pretty sure it was a cougar. Fox 13 reporter Scott Medeas was reporting live from the scene. Just as our field reporter got to the part about the cougar, a large cat appeared in the frame. As the words large cat spotted appeared at the bottom of the screen, the rest of the frame was suddenly filled with a live shot of a gray tabby house cat that had apparently wanted to be on TV. That's not it, said the reporter, adding, that looks like a house cat. Wildlife experts who've looked at the Concerned Citizens video say it was a house cat all along. Back to you in the studio. And finally, from the home office, 16-year-old William Joe Johnson found himself at the Express Inn in Pinellas Park, Florida, and he needed money. It was just before 11 a.m. on October 5th, two weeks ago today, that Billy Joe, as we'll call him, walked into the Achieva Credit Union Bank, indicated he may have a gun, and demanded money from a female teller. As usual, the bank would rather not say how much money he requested or how much he got. The police report, as usual, reads an undisclosed amount of cash. Anyway, Billy Joe got his money and left quickly, leaving behind the bank's security videos. Technology and social media play a huge role these days in crime and crime fighting, and there are lessons to be learned. Pinellas Park Police posted pictures of the still unidentified Billy Joe on Facebook. That was on a Thursday. The following Monday, police caught up with him at the aforementioned hotel. He told police a number of enlightening things about his crime. One, he had earlier walked into a Wells Fargo bank branch but got cold feet when he saw a big, strong male teller, so he went down the street to the Achieva Bank. Two, he told police he'd already spent every penny of that undisclosed amount, and three, that because he needed the money, he had done a Google search for how to rob a bank. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.